Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Dr. Sherry Yunwang, is a Chapman University professor who leads the patient safety laboratory focused on health service and health economics research. She is a trained pharmacist, trained in Hong Kong and in Australia, now working in the United States as a tenure-track assistant professor at Chapman University School of Pharmacy. She's enthusiastic about the role of pharmacy in bridging gaps in healthcare. Here to share her experience is Dr. Sherry Yunwang. Sherry, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Health Design Podcast. I want to start our conversation with understanding your background. You were born in China. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those early years of your life? I was born in China. I finished my pharmacy degree in China as well. So my original path, maybe like to be a pharmacist in China, but I feel like when I dive deep into the like research, I feel like, oh, maybe I'm more interested in knowing like why you're not taking your medications, why we pharmacists tell you to take these pills at 5 p.m. per day, but you reject it and you take the pills before you go to bed. So that's the basic motivation that I feel driven to pursue a master degree in public health, mainly focusing on the behavioral health. So I'm more into the psychology side of people's mind rather than the pharmacy side. But I, I can tell you later, like how I go back to come back to the school of pharmacy and become a professor in the school of pharmacy later. This is a long journey and I'm very excited to share my unique journey with you. I was thinking as you were speaking about that real challenge, because not only would there be a challenge in terms of understanding why people do things that differ from the professional advice that they may be receiving, but also the cultural context. Now, I know that you were born in China, you did your degree in Hong Kong, and then I see that you were at Monash University as well here in Australia. Tell us a little bit about that transition and whether it was purely professional or whether you had a cultural transition as well. I want to echo what you just mentioned. Like people across like different parts of the world, they have different beliefs in medication. So, you know, there is one simple story from my past exposure. Like when I was in China, my female friends who suffer from the period pain, I try to pass them the painkiller. I'm like, okay, take this. But they are, they never like believe in me or my word. They feel like painkillers for period is not good enough. They prefer to drink a bottle of brown sugar water, like hot water to kill the pain. It's like some, some type of Chinese medicine therapy, they feel like that would largely benefit themselves. So I totally echo to what you just said like different parts of the, in the world, they have different types of beliefs in the medications. So my journey start from the, my master degree in public health. So I finished my master degree and the, my, this, this decision led me to this research role at the Suicide Prevention Center of Hong Kong. So during that time, 
I was deeply involved in a groundbreaking project aiming to understand in what manner like people kill themselves, like by what type of products they kill themselves. Our mission was to connect coroner's report with data from Hong Kong Poison Information Center to uncover the factors behind these tragedies. Initially, you know, I've out from out of my pharmacy background, I believe antidepressants should be the top drug that people use to harm themselves or kill themselves. But it turned out, you know, the finding are very astonishing. It turned out the trick of burning suicide in enclosed spaces, often due to carbon monoxide poisoning, account to the highest number of deaths. So what surprised me even more than that is that many individuals who attempt suicide were using the common medications and sometimes it's the vitamins. So this type of research funding uh, really like catch my eyes and deeply touch me and inspire me to go back to my root. So my, I started as a pharmacist. So I decided, oh, I need to pursue a doctor degree in pharmacy. And here is, is where I am. I'm an assistant professor at the School of Pharmacy, Chairman University today. So I continue to dedicate myself to research. So my research is still about the critical issue related to poisoning and overdose, particularly the opioid overdose. I'm fascinated to hear that your idea at the time was that it was the pharmaceutical medications, prescribed medications that were being deployed in these acts of self-destruction. But in actual fact, it was something else. Did you understand why it was that people were ending their lives in a different way from the one that you had originally hypothesized? In suicide research, we have the idea hotspot. It means, you know, sometimes you will find the high buildings, like some open space, like people can basically jump from, they probably will end up their lives there. So we even co-authored a book chapter on the International Handbook of Suicide Prevention. We try to steal the idea like, okay, if the charcoal is so accessible to the patients, we should ban the ceiling of charcoal in some places like the supermarkets. Maybe people will go to barbecue to the beach, right? They will go to the beach and barbecue so we can sell the charcoal over there. Very similar to the control, the situation of this scenario, very similar to how we manage the control substance. As I mentioned earlier, on, I, I was doing control substance research or particularly opioid medication. So you know the we are experiencing a very high spike of opioid overdose here and there. This is a very international issue right now. There is no, I, I don't feel like there is better painkillers rather than opioids in the treatment of cancer patients. But in reality, like people got addicted, people started to abuse it, and this is, becomes a big issue for the, all the society. I can see how the use of a therapeutic medication can end up in this very tragic tale where patients are using those very treatments in order to end their lives. Again, going back into your past research and, and knowing how this was happening with 
charcoal burning and carbon monoxide poisoning. Did you see any lessons that would help us to understand how to manage the business of opioid overdoses? We first need to remove the regulatory barriers to the treatment facilities. I have a very vivid real-world example. It's related to my research. So what I'm doing, I picture all the concurrently I'm doing was picturing the availability of buprenorphine prescribers. So buprenorphine, as you know, is a typical medication for opioid use disorder. But in America, like we have those type of regulations, the physicians need to get a license to pres- prescribe the buprenorphine. So they need to go through and go maybe 30 hours training to get those type of lessons. We call it a data waiver. So in reality, if you need to take on additional training to prescribe this type of you know, treatments for opioid use disorder, it actually, it, you know, doctors may feel I have very low motivation to do so, even like I want to help people, right? Because I'm really busy. I'm so occupied by this and that. So this is a reality, you know, in my research, like we try to make the data waiver, like this type of lessons or certificate for those uh, available for the physicians so they can treat more than 30 patients. But in my research, I found even among those people who got the X waivers, only 15 of them could treat up to 30 patients or more than 30 patients. So it's very pathetic if we have those legislative or regulatory barrier, like, you know, like the physicians feel struggle to get access to prescribing. And it could be something that hurdle, uh, serve as a hurdle to patient access to the treatment for their addiction. So I think this is very sad truth for what we are facing right now, like how to get the access for the patient, even the, like in California, we have a large number of homeless people. Like every time you got on the streets of LA, you feel heartbroken. They are living in the shelter or sometimes uncovered shelter. So for those people, it's really hard to get them get covered at, and under Medicare or Medicaid. So they also have some behavioral problems. So it's very difficult for them to access the like behavioral health facilities or even get the buprenorphine for their addiction. So I think the, our healthcare system in the United States, we often describe it as who decides does not pay or use, who pays does not decide or use, or who use does not decide or pay. So they are very broken pieces of the picture. So I think maybe moving forward, we can, if we are trying to design a high-performing healthcare system for patients with complex needs, the definitely removing the legislative regulatory barriers could make some change to all the patients. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. I want to talk a little bit now about the ideas you sent me about the shocking events in November 2022 when 
suddenly it appeared that insulin was now free. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that yeah. unfolded? I think it's last year, in November 2022, the Twitter introduced a like, special add-on, the checkmark, the blue one, right? So you can pay basically $8 per month and get that checkmark. So there was a very funny, interesting story happening after that. 34-year-old writer pulled a prank. So he turned an old account under his name into a new account that looked like it belonged to the pharmaceutical giant, Lili Lili. And he tweeted, like, insulin is free now. So this insulin Twitter went viral, fooling many patients, many people, and making others laugh. Surprisingly, Lili Lili's stock dropped by uh, uh, about 4%, and eventually, Eli Lilly lost over $15 million because of fake news. So what's, the, what's behind the story? This is the harsh truth. A box of insulin costs $20 in Canada, but American patients are paying $300 per box. In reality, we have more than 30 million American people who have diabetes, and 8 million of them need insulin every single day. Even those who have been covered by any type of healthcare insurance they have to end up paying over 1000 per month. So this high cost forces them to use less insulin than they should. Some of my friends also have this type of condition. They share their story with me. They feel like, oh, I can choose to inject the insulin every other day or you know, reduce how much I need insulin. So I, I watch some news, Netflix, new stories like they made on Netflix. Some people have ever have even like lost their lives because they could not afford the insulin. So I remember there is a video, a side mom was crying for his son, like the son cannot, cannot afford the insulin. Sometimes they go to Mexico to buy the cheaper insulin, but it's not enough for their, you know, because the insulin is so life-sustaining drug for the diabetes patients. So right now, our president Biden he has introduced the new Inflation Reduction Act. So starting from January of this year, so the Inflation Reduction Act limits the insulin cost to 35 per month for Medicare users. So this is fantastic news, I feel. Like Lila Lily started to lead the way to offering like the cheaper insulin to more people. So I can expect like many insulin makers will follow that mode. And yeah, there is other like, you know, a little bit, I would call it a game changer, like uh, because of the Inflation Reduction Act. For the very first time in America, we, the Medicare can negotiate the drug prices with pharmaceutical companies. So for unlike the other countries, for decades and decades, Americans never like have this type of negotiation with pharmaceutical companies. So we just let the pharmaceutical companies set their prices at their will without any regulations. So that's basically something we need to celebrate. I can imagine patients right across America feeling very grateful for the fact that it's unfolded in this way and pe people are now able to get the treatment that they need. Are there other medications that are similarly priced much higher in the U.S. than they are around the world? 
right now, like the drug price in the United States is almost 3.5 times more than the other countries. And we like we are close to double the prices compared to Canada, UK, Germany and France. So the particular drugs are biologics, cancer treatment and the often drugs designed for the real conditions. I, I believe in you know, balancing the we have the triangle in healthcare. We always say balancing the cost, the quality and the access in healthcare is, is a tough job anywhere. And changing one thing by let's say you lower the price, but you can also make it harder to keep the quality and access to healthcare. I have worked in Melbourne, Australia for one year. So I start I look into the some research surrounding stroke patients. So we we find that even like countries with the universal health coverage like Australia. We are still, our stroke patients still facing some issue like getting the access, timely access to medical services. And our healthcare system in Australia is also dealing with high demand, high patient demand, and not having, we are not having enough healthcare worker and our healthcare professionals failing, burning out. So this is a very complicated world of healthcare and the price is, sky high so like i think we need to like all the stakeholders need to work together work um decide some smart strategies and make sure the life-saving treatment are available and affordable for everyone in the world i love that categorization of healthcare in terms of the triangle the cost the quality and then the access and you're quite right access can be a major problem even if the cost is low and the quality is high if the access is not there, as is the case, not just in this country, but in many other countries around the world, then the outcomes are poor. I want to go to another area that you've talked mm -hmm. about uh, in other forums, and that is that healthcare is more than just about medication. It's a fascinating thing that a pharmacist is saying that, so I want to challenge you on this. <laughs> Can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about those thoughts? Why, why is that the case? Maybe I'm not saying for, from the perspective of all the pharmacists over the world, I'm just uh, talking about my true belief. I believe the lifestyle is the medicine. I think I have done lots of behavioral health interventions in the past. That's, why, that's how I feel this way. So I still want to emphasize the important role of medicine in enhancing patient outcomes. But uh, it's very important to recognize medicine it goes beyond the prescription drugs. Like the lifestyle medicine goes beyond the simple direction, like drink more water, access regularly, eat healthy. You know, those simple lessons we learn from our grandpa. <laughs> it also involves a very comprehensive approach that address critical aspects, such as how to support diabetes patients in managing their insulin treatment. How to make sure like the stroke patient come back for the follow-up visits or uh, how to help people like improve their medication adherence for chronic disease like my phd project uh, we, we go through the electronic health records in hong kong we discover like not everyone adhere to their lipid lowering drugs uh, we found you know this probably can be some something positive like we can work on. So yes, um, I feel like medicine is more than medication. 
And sometimes we as pharmacists, we feel like we just prescribe, but you know, we also need some help or support at the community level to make sure the people are taking the medication at the right time, at the right dosage, and make sure they are fully adherent to the medication we get. Thank you. That, that's an interesting juxtaposition because we talked earlier about cultural challenges. And clearly, if you're from the East, the cultural nuances are very different from the ones in the West. How did you manage to adjust to this change? Because you're coming from a culture that is very compliant. The doctor says it's taken as law, whereas in the West, that's not necessarily the case because people see through the many cracks there are in the thinking around the value of uh, medications and, and healthcare generally. That must have been an uncomfortable journey for you. Uh, as you said, when East meets the West, it's a typical situation for me. Like, you know, people's beliefs in certain medications are so diverse. My friend recently had a baby and she got a bottle of opioids. It's a full bottle of opioids. So the doctors or the physician like her to bring it back home. And, you know, there is some chance, you know, people can easily get access to this type of control substance. And there is a chance like, you know, my, my, my friend will hate me to tell this story. Like there was one day my friend cut her hand and he ran to the opioid medication because she knew this is a very effective painkillers for herself. So the husband stopped her, God bless. So like, I, I feel like I told her like, oh, God bless. You didn't get into the opioid addiction, what I'm researching on. So I found in the Eastern side of the world, like we are so against the addictive nature of painkiller. Like I told you early on, my friend suffered from the menstrual disorders or the pain from the period, but they never take painkillers. It also takes us actual efforts to convince them like, oh, this type of very first line painkillers will not lead you to addiction. So it's like a reverse side of the story compare my American side story. Like it's interesting. So I think the patient education is very essential. And we also need cross source all the like manpower, like the, you know, the nurse practitioner, the physician assistant. They are sometimes the first line responders. So even the other pharmacists. So I probably always, I'm probably a, uh, advocate for the expanding the scope of pharmacists. So when I, you know, right now I'm a professor at the university. So I got the get involved in the admission process for the university. Every time when the students or the candidates came to us, I asked them why you want to pursue a pharmacist career. Why this is attractive to you? Where is your passion? They always share some personal stories with me, like how they help their immigrant parents manage the medication, how they help the Im immigrant, like grandpa, grandma, talk to the doctor because the grand grandma could not speak English, right? So they feel like those communication with the pharmacist is so important that like the pharmacist as the first line responders address all the concerns the grandma, grandpa has. So that's what I feel like, you know, maybe our pharmacist should take on more accountability to explain why this drug is useful to you, rather than just dispensing of, you know, prescribing. The Journal of Health Design, 
fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Often the pharmacist is the one that is translating what has been said in the healthcare environment and saying this is what is meant by that or that's a concern that you should be taking back to your physician or whatever happens to be. So the scope of pharmacy practice is key in terms of developing that partnership with patients. Can you say a little bit more about that? Where do you see that ultimately going in healthcare in the future? Many of our healthcare professionals, they feel burning out and our dedicated providers bear the weight of the demanding role. So I feel like moving forward, the pharmacist and physician can collaborate closely so we can work on some innovative strategies to compact this type of burnout and, you know, to improve patients' access and elevate the health outcomes. You know, especially since the COVID-19, the pharmacists have been stepping up remarkably. So they have taken on essential roles in COVID-19 testing, vaccinations, regarding our communities. So especially in the rural and underserved areas, you know, they only have one pharmacist maybe in this community. This is some, some people telling me like this is a reality in the rural areas. So in this type of scenario, the pharmacists play a more critical role, often serving as a primary accessible healthcare provider, bridging the gaps in certain services. So I know Canada has paved the way to expand the pharmacist role through their legislative and regulatory change. But in the United States, we are really slow. So pharmacists still face a significant hurdle, like they don't have the provider status at the federal level. Only around 40 states allow pharmacists as the provider and the Medicare Harpy in the year 2020. So I hope like, you know, some positive changes could be on the way to address this type of issue, ensuring like the pharmacist receives the recognition. I, I know you're a physician, so I want to pinpoint that. And I feel like, you know, pharmacists can do a lot, especially in the community service, like nutrition counseling, the remote, like patient monitoring, telehealth consultation, and, you know, serving or supporting sub-community health workers. Actually, we have some pharmacists who help with the diabetes control or help people manage their cholesterol level. We already observed in some literature, like the significant reduction in clinical biomarkers, like the blood sugar level, blood pressure, and indicating substantial enhancement if we involve the pharmacist. I think you were quite right to talk about COVID-19 because, in fact, that is exactly when pharmacy came into its own, particularly and not just in terms of the testing and vaccination of populations, but for many patients with chronic illness, that was the only healthcare provider who was easily accessible. You didn't need an appointment. You could see somebody straight away. And as you say, sometimes they were crucial in translating what needed to be done in order for those outcomes. And that became a key part of forging that partnership between patients and their healthcare providers, a bridge between the clinicians and the community. 
where to from here? What do you think will happen in the next five to 10 years? Because we've had COVID-19 and we've come into a world that's very different. What do you think, given all the other things you talked about, access, quality and price, where do you think we'll go from here? I think we can definitely, definitely like think about the innovative models to enhance the the response of our first line responders. So we have a local pharmacy called CVS. Like CVS has a very successful model, like business model. They have the clinic in their pharmacy, like the community pharmacy called Minute Clinic, staffed by certified family nurse, practitioner, and physician assistant. So they use this type of approach, like these clinics provide care for very common medical conditions. I recently waited them for twice, like to get my COVID-19 test, to get the vaccination. And sometimes they give you, they prescribe some medication when you need it. So they they are not only serving the functionally insured people, they are also serving the people with pre-existing condition, complicated needs, and the uninsured people. So I found like looking forward, this could be some positive approach. Also, I want to talk about the healthcare data. I'm healthcare data scientist as well. So I'm managing my lab, utilizing various types of healthcare data to map the opioid prescribing to find out who are the buprenorphine prescribers. So in recent years, I'm so obsessed with the generative artificial intelligence. So I'm very obsessed with this type of cutting edge technology. You know, like in healthcare field, like the data integration is always being a challenge. I think you probably work in the hospital, you see all types of electronic health records. But in American, we are like multiple payers system. So we don't exchange data at all. Like different multiple stakeholders closely guard their data. When you touch their data, they feel like, no, we should kick you out. So this is our reality. Navigating healthcare data privacy is always a big, big challenge. You know, it also involves some legal, ethical, and technology issues. So I'm, I'm recently like starting to use the um, sometimes the AI technology to look into the data. Like we have some fancy terms called privacy preserving artificial intelligence. So basically it means like you can train your data individually and upload it into the cloud. So we can train in your data as a whole, cloud sourcing different types of data resources. I found like, you know, maybe COVID-19 shows us like by one single country, by one single area, one single hospital, we cannot collect all the COVID-19 information. And moving forward, we, I hope we won't have another COVID-19 pandemic. But when we have some emergency cases like this, I think, you know, the data definitely help you to decide what type of prescription I need to give to my patient, what type of standardized care, or what's the optimal care path I can offer to my patient. I think the data, the support of data is to, means a lot and it could make a huge impact. Sherry Yun Wang, you're extraordinary. You're quite right. The world of healthcare is changing. Thank you for drawing attention to the role of pharmacists. You're quite right. They're going to play an increasing role as frontline responders, as you call them. 
your enthusiasm is infectious and your energy is obvious. Thank you so much Thank for taking you. your time. Thank you very much. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.